1: Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area.
2: Our conversation today with Rabbi Charlie Cohen, who is, of course, from Congregation Samach Adonai in Los Gatos. And Rabbi Charlie, great to have you with us today.
3: Thanks. Glad to be
2: here. There's a lot for us to unpack in our conversation, not only learning more about your congregation in the South Bay, but also some of your own personal stories. So let's start a bit there. Tell us a bit about your journey to first discovering who Messiah was and then eventually embracing him.
3: Yeah. So I grew up in a conservative synagogue. Which is uh, pretty common in the, in the U.S. Most kids uh, probably would grow up in either a conservative or a reform synagogue, and uh, you know, it's, it's no, no no knock on them that uh, that I kind of fit into the seeker category because you know Judaism has a very rich tradition and uh, and, and and there's plenty there to, uh, to embrace. But, I uh, I guess I found myself as a teenager, uh, kind of wanting to know more spiritually. And, uh, I got the whole liturgical part down, but, uh, I wanted to know more. I guess you could say more about God to know more about God, who is God. And, uh, it's not, as I say, it's no knock on conservative Judaism, as though they do not teach you that. But uh, it put me into, I I think, that seeker category. And, and once in that seeker category, uh, it also kind of opened the door to just looking around. You know, it's it's kind of like if, if you grew up in a little small town and went to the big city, and suddenly you're like, wow, hey... <laughs> Look at all these things I, I never knew about. So I, I'm not saying you know I I I went into Buddhism or all those kinds of things, but but I was asking big questions, and the the big one was was about Messiah because we'd always been told Messiah was coming. Where is he? Translate, and so it, it just happened that uh, an acquaintance was staying with our family a few days and, and, uh, was, uh, part of the, you know, the, I guess the Jesus people movement of the sixties. And they, they were pretty fired up. And, and he, he, he's holding a Bible and he says, have you ever read the Bible? And, uh, I go, of course we, we more or less, uh, Wrote that at least at least the first five books we're quite familiar with, <laughs> <laughs> right? We got the publishing rights to that book. Yeah, and, and uh, he goes, "No, no, I mean, have you ever read this Bible?" So he hands it to me, and uh, I notice it had a new part that our ours didn't have, the the New Testament. So I go, "No, I haven't read that version." And he says, I, "I recommend you take a look." So I I, I read through. Uh, the four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John. Of course, uh, the language was a little unfamiliar. It Was the King James version it wasn't quite the same as as our Bible.
2: Don't don't tell that to most Christians because they think that's the yeah. way God talks.
3: Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I had to kind of work through that. But uh, by the time I finished the Gospel of John, my, I kept saying to myself, "Well, wait, wait a minute. Did we miss something here?" uh this is really seeming like the genuine article, and that 's basically how i I came to faith uh in in uh, Jesus we say Yeshua uh, by reading reading the gospels and so, then, so it wasn 't uh, as
2: necessarily then rabbi Charlie a sense of dissatisfaction per se in your your religious experience in conservative Judaism, but but rather yeah. what, a sense of being a bit incomplete? It, it's like the whole the whole story hadn't been revealed?
3: Right. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I you know it's not a thing that you would automatically do, I don't think. Like for some people, some Jewish people, you, you do the exact same thing and they finish reading it and they go, So, what's new? you know it, it, it had to do with something that God was doing on my heart. It, it was his sovereign call on my life that I was responding to. And I think when that's true, then you're, you're more or less fulfilling the parable of the sower. Because in the parable of the sower, not much happens until the seed is put on fertile ground. And, and for uh, various reasons that, you know, we can't always know God God is operating in his own ways. Uh, my heart was in a place that that was fertile soil.
2: Give us a glimpse into the, the life of the congregation there and uh, multivariety, I understand, on the website of, of uh, services that you guys offer and programs and things of that sort.
3: Yeah. Let's start. I, I don't know if I could, Craig, this might be redundancy, but go back to this, this uh, the Jewish model versus the church model. So first of all, you know, in, in the church world, if you're not showing up every week, you'll get a call from the pastor. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. Where are you? What's the matter here? You know, you're not here every week. But the Jewish world, that that's not true. Like You could go months and not visit the synagogue, and no one seems to be even worried about it. So... uh We find that more true with with our Jewish members and non-Jewish members, but they might not show up for a while, but it doesn't mean there's a problem. It's just that they don't have that experience that you're there every single week, you know, but we, we have kind of a revolving group in in that sense of uh, might be a few weeks. You won't see uh, a person and then they're suddenly there regularly and so on. It's just a little bit different of of an experience. But we are, we're high on, uh, we are high on, uh, teaching. We're very teaching oriented. Uh, sometimes a little overkill sometimes. So we have classes in the afternoons and and anyone can drop in. We have Hebrew classes and, and, uh, sometimes Torah studies or Bible studies and that sort of thing. And, uh, and we do, that's kind of a Jewish thing. We, we want to break it down. We want to know what this is. And so we do, we have a lot of teaching, uh, uh, and and fellowship. So one thing that's common in the messianic Jewish congregational world is to take this idea of having uh, having uh, you know coffee and uh, and uh, and donuts after the service, uh, which in, in, in most synagogues is referred to as a uh, oneg shabbat, which means the delight of the Sabbath is to grab a cup of coffee and a donut and talk to the people after the service is over. And we take that farther with, uh, with a potluck meal we share together. And uh, we do that every single week, you know. And, and so around the table, you actually get to know someone. And it's very uh, warm and engaging, uh, I would say. I, I remember uh, there was an older couple who, who would visit us fairly often from a synagogue in the Bay Area. I'm not going to name any names here. But one day I just said, uh, uh you know, hey, Erwin, you know, why do you come to our synagogue so often? Like, it, this isn't really, like, totally in sync with your theology. I know that. And he said, well, you're right. But the reason we keep coming is your, your people are so loving and welcoming. Hmm. We don't get that same loving and welcoming experience all the time. And so that I, I think Messianic Congregational Movement has really flourished partly on, on that basis. I remember uh, a few years ago, there was a uh, the leader of the largest uh, conservative synagogue in Los Angeles that was, I guess, interviewed, and they had a full-page thing spread in the L.A. Times. And uh, he kind of wrapped it up by saying, you know, there are certain things I think we need to change about how we come together. And he said we need to share food together, we need to, you know, have good music, sing songs, and uh, and maybe even have some Jewish dance. Well, he's describing a messianic congregation. You know, they, these are the things that we're known for. So uh, I, I do think the fellowship aspect is very important.
2: At the end of the day it all comes back to relationships, doesn't it? Both relationships it does, abso-
3: along Yeah, the, it absolutely uh, does.
2: along the horizontal and of course most I, importantly along the vertical.
3: I know as you build relationship, you know you can deliver almost any message across a, a solid relationship
2: indeed so and words of wisdom from rabbi charlie cohen again from congregation samach adonai their shabbat services are at 10:30 a.m. at 16735 lark avenue in los gatos and you can get more information by going to the web i'm going to spell the name for you go to www of course t s e m a c h a D O N A I dot O R G, or you can call them at area code 831 477 7739. That's 831 477 7739.
3: Greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is Rabbi Charlie Cohen. and uh, we're going to take a little journey together in God's Word. And I, I could just bring you into this world of mine, cold turkey, but it seems like it might be a good idea to first introduce you folks a little bit to what is different about my world so we can journey together uh, and, and maybe get a little bit more out of this. The first thing I'll mention is you'll notice from the a quotation of scriptures or my reading of the scripture that might seem a little different than the version you're accustomed to and that's because I will be reading from and quoting from the complete Jewish Bible it's a translation that was uh, produced by David H Stern who lives in Jerusalem Israel and your probably your first thought is what do you mean the complete Jewish Bible aren't All the Bibles that we have, complete, and uh, aren't they all based almost exclusively on Jewish writing? So in in that sense, every Bible is a complete Jewish Bible. So the, the name is slightly misleading. But let's think for a moment about Bible translations. So in every instance of an English translation of the Bible, it is from uh, first of all, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament, whose writers wrote in Greek. Now, there is a little bit of Aramaic in the uh, in the Old Testament, but mostly Hebrew. By the way, while we're on the subject, I think I actually prefer Older Testament and Newer Testament to Old and New. Let me give an example. Let's say... Uh, You know, you're a Corvette aficionado and you have two of them, those little sports cars in your garage. You have one that's brand new off the lot and the other that is 10 years old. But you speak in affectionate terms about both. When you show them off, are you going to say, here's my new Corvette and my old Corvette? (laughs) Probably not. You're going to say, well, this one's a, a brand new off the lot. The other is a, a 10 year old. It's a classic. Okay. And, and you, you're going to speak as lovingly of both. And so for us, we like to think of instead of an Old Testament, which in our culture of obsolescence of old things, we get rid of old stuff, buy new stuff. For us, it's older, yes, but it's beloved. And the, the New Testament is not just the New Testament it's a newer testament so i think it's very helpful to think in those terms i understand that this is less familiar to you but at any rate when we're thinking about translations we have that older testament written in hebrew and the newer one written in greek well the complete jewish bible is very helpful with certain word choices Because isn't that, that's always the dilemma of the translator, is when you get to a word which the source language, either Hebrew or Greek, contains, maybe there's not a a direct one-for-one correspondence in the target language, in our case, English. And and I want to give you an example so you don't think I'm just academizing here and, and, uh, you know, dancing on the head of a pin. Let's take the example of the word law or, or Torah. As we find in the scripture. Now, in Proverbs 1 8, it says something like, in most English versions, Hear, my son, the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. It it literally says, Hear the Musar of your father, and do not forsake the Torah of your mother. Uh, Musar means something like guidance. And in fact, there's a whole movement. In the jewish world called the musar movement which is to draw guidance in life from jewish ethics so it's a movement of the study and application of jewish ethics it's called the musar and then the second half of that line forsake not the teaching of your mother it actually says do not forsake the torah of your mother so that's our first clue about the word torah and why Law, while it might have been a fairly accurate choice in some senses for Torah in both the uh, the older and newer testaments, it's not a perfect correspondence, is it? So the idea of Torah has instruction, teaching, guidance, and of course it does also have the idea of divine decree or law. So all of those ideas are in Torah. Now, what you choose in your English version will steer the reader towards a particular understanding. And in our complete Jewish Bible, we generally have Torah. Now, Torah might be lighter on the law component and heavier on the instruction component. I don't know. Depends on your experience with it. But law is somewhat inadequate to convey the Hebrew idea of Torah. That's one example. And then uh, when it comes to names in the Bible, we, I say we, the Jewish people, and David Stern in particular, who produced this version of the Bible, names, uh, names always matter, or names are important. But in the Bible, these are Jewish names, and we have those names. Like, even if you have a common English name, Most Jewish men and women are given a Hebrew name when they're infants. And so when a reader is addressed in a synagogue, let's say a person is addressed in a synagogue, called up to read from the Bible, they will be called up by their Hebrew name. So James, for example, in English is somehow from Jacob, which is actually Yaakov. So uh, I have friends whose name is Yaakov. I would never call them Jacob. That's not their name. So we have an affinity for the Hebrew names, which is natural for us. And I think it was a natural for David Stern to translate most of the names in the Bible to their proper Hebrew pronunciation. Before anyone thinks to trivialize this notion and go, why does it matter? Let me give you an example from the sports world. In the Bay Area, we have the Warriors, uh, many of us like to watch and follow. This year, they have a new player on the team who's from Eastern Europe. Now, thanks to the commentators, we know that his name is Bielitsa. But if you look at the back of his uniform, I don't know how you get there because it looks like Bajelica. But if you say Bajelica, uh, you're going to be a root. <laughs> I can use another name. And we see this time and again, where there's a, a right way to say it and a another way to say it, but which is which do you prefer? well, if you're the person holding the name, you'd probably prefer that they pronounce it the way your mom and dad did. so for Jesus, for example, we generally say Yeshua Now it turns out that's extremely helpful for readers of the Bible, at least of the Hebrew text, because his name Yeshua. Is directly from Yeshua which literally means salvation so whenever we read about the salvation of God in the in the Tanakh the Old Testament we're reading the word Yeshua the Yeshua of God and so isn't that helpful to know that Jesus our Savior his very name is salvation so there are a number a number of uh, advantages I guess you could say But I'm just introducing this so that you won't be confused and wonder why my version sounds different than yours, especially when we come to the names. Now, the second thing is, why is it the complete Jewish Bible? And so what is Jewish and what is complete? Well, I got to the Jewish part, which is, by and large, the word choices. But the complete part simply means not that... Your Bible, whatever version it is, is incomplete, but it actually is a, a reference to David Stern because he first accomplished this with the New Testament only and published it, and it was called, understandably, the Jewish New Testament. But later in life, he completed a translation of the, of the Old Testament, and the two combined are now the Complete Jewish Bible. So that's where we get the CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible. Uh, Okay, that out of the way. The next thing I'd like to uh, briefly explain is introduce you to the Jewish approach to the public reading of Scripture. Now, in your churches, generally, the public reading of Scripture is by the pastor or whoever is at the pulpit and preaching on Sunday. But in, in a Jewish synagogue, there is every week on the Sabbath a public reading of the Scripture. And with that, we read a portion of the Scripture to the audience that is optionally followed by commentary or a homily or sermon. That's another thing in where we differ because often the commentary or the application part will come out later in a kind of a, a round table or study session or a Torah class or something like that versus in the actual service itself. And uh, now Messianic Judaism, perhaps because of so many of the leaders in our movement, have had our feet in the evangelical world at one time or another, or perhaps still do, we like to preach a sermon. So we always give the commentary after the public reading. Now, what portion do we read? Is it topical? Is it random? What is it? Well, it's very clearly defined, and the answer to that question actually answers another question we haven't asked yet, which is, how is it that this year, on December 25th, which falls on on a Sabbath, how is it that in every synagogue in the world, people were reading publicly in the service about the birth of Moses on Christmas Day? But wait a minute, (laughs) was that planned, or is this some kind of a... Subversion of of the birth of Jesus Did we read about the birth of Moses. Are we competing? Actually, the answer is no. What we read publicly in the synagogue is a portion of the first five books of the Bible every single week. And it follows the Jewish calendar in the fall after the high holy days are complete. Yom Kippur and then Sukkot uh, is the close of the uh, High Holy Days, and actually the close, I guess you could say, of the sacred calendar for the year, we roll the scroll all the way to the beginning to Genesis, and we start the day after Sukkot, Genesis 1, verse 1. So those first five books of the Bible are divided into 54 readings, and those passages are the same the world over. Everywhere where Jews go to synagogue, and that's irrespective of their, uh, I I don't know if you want to call it a denominational identity, but whether they're Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, uh, Reconstructionist, or whatever, all follows the exact same breakdown of the first five books of of the Torah. And so that's why I say in every synagogue in the world, they were reading about the birth of Moses. And so that answers the question, doesn't it? Because everyone is going to read. That particular portion has a name. It's called Shemot, which means names, because the first couple of verses of the book of Exodus says these are the names of the descendants of Jacob that went down to Egypt. You know, that's how it goes. And I I thought... With the word that I would share with you folks today, why not share from the most recent portion, which is uh, called Shemot, and is the first six chapters of the book of Exodus. So that's basically what I'll be sharing from today. And then finally, let me just say, I hope it doesn't come across this way, but it may seem that I have some kind of an agenda here. Like I'm going to try to make, you know, make you folks into Messianic Jews or something. I do not have an agenda when I speak from the Word of God. My approach to reading and expositing the Word of God is basically this. Number one, I want us to have better theology. And by that, I mean theology is knowing about God's thoughts, what he thinks about things. And, you know, we need this more than ever in the day we live in. We need to know what is God's thoughts about that. and We're constantly faced with moral choices and dilemmas on the job, in the home, and so on. And isn't it helpful to have an idea about what God's thoughts are on that? Then that could help shape our response to those kinds of dilemmas. That's my idea of theology, and I think we desperately need to know what God thinks about things rather than what other people tell us is the right way to think about things, if we know what God thinks about it, then that could inform our hearts and lives in some very important ways. Secondly, I think expositing his word has the very important purpose of informing us as believers how to live as believers. That is to say, what to do in our lives that is satisfying to God's will. And I call that the doing part. So we read his word to know what to do, how to be the the people of God, and his word will enlighten us. It's a light unto our path. We gain understanding in what we should do. So that's very important. And then thirdly, and this is in my prayer, every single time I pray before I preach, which is so as a result of God's word, we can draw closer to him. So this idea of drawing closer to God, I call the experiential part of our walk. So it comes as a result of really knowing God's Word will draw us closer to Him. And when we're closer, we have an experience, don't we? It can't all be knowledge, although knowledge is a part of it. It can't all be instructional. Though instructional is certainly part of it. But we need, as believers, to experience God. So that experiential part is crucial. So these are my motivations, what motivates me. And I'm hoping that uh, this is what you draw from my little exposition here today. Okay, well, thanks for giving me just a moment or two to uh, give you that background. Now I think we're ready to jump in. I'm going to be speaking from the Torah passage or the passage of Scripture that was read in every synagogue last week, and I'm going to relate that to Christmas, (laughs) which is kind of interesting, right? So it seems that the story of the birth of, of Moses that we have in Genesis 1 is a vastly different story. Than the birth of Jesus Yeshua, the birth of Moses is a is a Jewish tradition. The birth of Jesus is a Christian tradition, and uh, the birth of Moses doesn't have you know a, a little setup of the manger with the with the sheep and the feed trough and the and the mom happy mom and dad and their the baby is laying in the hay with a little blanket. No, that's the birth of Moses is completely different, right? Let's just compare for a second in the birth of the story of the birth of Moses. We have him being born in a time of slavery and oppression of the Israelites. This is the people, the Israelites, who had once been highly favored in the time of their ancestor Joseph, who ruled all Egypt. Joseph was Pharaoh's guy. I'm sure he introduced him as my number one, Joe. Man, he is my guy. This guy is awesome, you know? It's like every investment that he makes multiplies a hundred times. You got to know this guy. And the Pharaoh bestowed all kinds of honor and respect on Joseph. And so, uh the Israelites were a favored people. They got to live in the best county in Egypt and and had the best city in Egypt short of the Pharaoh's own capital city. And they were highly favored. You couldn't speak poorly of the Israelites. But when Moses is born, the situation had flipped. A formerly favored people had become an enslaved and oppressed people. So that's the context of the birth of Moses. And then as the story unfolds, we find out that of all people, Moses, who wasn't even living in Egypt or in the promised land at the time, but he was living uh, way to the east in the land of Midian, that God specifically called him for the purpose of delivering his people. So that's who we're looking at is Moses. But when we get in chapter three to the story of the burning bush, very clearly God speaks to Moses. Well, first he says, take the shoes off your feet, you're standing on holy ground. And Moses understands it's God who's speaking. He even covers his face, so he won't look at the bush. And God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. I have understood their pain, their suffering. And so Moses is initially reluctant to take the job. He doesn't feel like he has the qualifications. Nevertheless, he's God's one and only choice. There's no backup plan. It's not like God says, well, if you won't do it, I got another guy over here. So, you know, hey, make up your mind. No, God just in fact finally it says his fury rose up because of Moses refusing to do it. But he didn't give him an out. He told him, You've got to do it. You're my choice. So we have Moses chosen of God to be the great deliverer of his people. And 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 I think because Moses then in taking the job, we also see that he was a great intercessor before God that time and time again he fell down in the presence of God and pleaded for his people because you know his people were were stubborn they had their faults and more than once God would say well let's just uh let's start over with you but Moses pleaded for his people he interceded for his people and so i think he rightly earns the reputation as a redeemer person for Israel. That it was that repeated intercession between God and Israel that elevates him to the class of of a redeemer, at least to a certain extent. Now in the tradition of Christmas, as I said, seemingly a completely different tradition. Completely different, right? But wait, let's look at some of the details here. Yes, the birth of Yeshua Jesus is quite different in that the angel comes to Mary and says, uh, You're going to give birth, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and blah, blah. And she says, Well, how can that be? I'm a virgin, I'm not even married. And uh, the angel said, Don't worry about it. This is the power of God will accomplish this, and so on. Well, uh, that's obviously different. And certainly when the angel says he will be called the Son of God, that's obviously very different. But one thing we do see right away is, uh, surprisingly, is that Yeshua, Jesus, is in fact born in the context of oppression. Uh, Israel is is oppressed and dominated by Rome, and the people are not free. It's not quite the same as the house of slavery in Egypt, uh, but it would be hard to say that that the people were truly a free people in their land, and so uh, the people felt this deeply and and when we read uh, when we read for example in in the the story of uh, post resurrection uh, we call it the story of the road to Emmaus, the two disciples that that Yeshua walked with, one of them was re- they were both looked pretty sad and and he and yeshua said, "Well, why are you so sad? Well, where are you from? Don't you know anything?" <laughs> and he says, "Well, tell me, you know, I'd like news. Well, uh, you know, Yeshua, uh, who everyone thought was a not only a great prophet, uh, but as it says in Luke 24, uh, the whole nation long was longing for It's salvation and deliverance. And we thought that he would be our deliverance, which implies Rome, of course. So uh, the nation felt dominated. They felt oppressed. They were taxed, and all the taxes went to Caesar. And and the Romans really didn't care about their religion. They just permitted them uh, uh, to live the way they did, just to sort of keep peace. Uh, Romans hated, you know, anything that would mess up uh, their administration, and so they just kind of tolerated the Jewish people. And so uh, me- much of the time, people wanted to know, are you the Messiah? So not because they were waiting for necessarily uh, someone to mediate between man and God, even though it turned out his principle role at that time was priestly in mediation because they were looking for a king redeemer who would free them from the oppression of rome so it turns out that there is a a slight bit of a parallel there and and in fact the closer we look we see that these two two traditions might even be more similar than different Now, let's consider this, that uh, Moses, unbeknownst, entirely unbeknownst to Israel, would become their deliverer. In other words, he was extremely incognito. He wasn't living in in the uh, Israelite city or cities or villages in Egypt. He wasn't slaving with them and making bricks and... And, uh, and all of those kinds of things. First of all, as a young man, he lived in the palace of Pharaoh. And then when he was older, he, he was in self exile from the land of Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian and, and he was living far away in the land of Midian. So there, uh, he was completely off the radar, totally out of the picture no one knew him, no one knew about him, and God goes to him. You are going to redeem my people. With Jesus, with Yeshua, when he's born, is, is he born in Jerusalem? No. He's born uh, in Nazareth, of all places. Now, remember when someone later on, when, when he does appear in his public ministry, and uh, people all excited, oh, have you heard the teaching of, uh, of Yeshua? We think he's a prophet, maybe the Messiah. And someone said, what? What do you mean? Nothing comes out of the Galilee, <laughs> the far north, and the lands of the Gentiles. No, nothing good ever comes out of there, especially Nazareth. And uh, little did they know, he was actually and literally born in Bethlehem, a suburb of Jerusalem. Aegis's family lived in Nazareth. But he was extremely incognito uh, the whole time growing up. Did anyone really know his full identity other than, than Mary, uh, his mother, and perhaps Joseph, his, his legal father? I don't know. Probably, I don't think so, because it wasn't yet his time to be publicly known. And Moses spends the first 40 of his years of his life entirely incognito. Uh, Jesus spends the first 30 years of his life, virtually entirely incognito. And in both cases both were born to it when their own nation longed for deliverance. Finally, both were chosen of God. There could be no other in the case of Moses. He and he alone, no matter how unqualified he thought of himself. And God would not even permit the notion of someone else. And in the case of uh, Yeshua, clearly he and he alone could be, could be the Messiah uh, exclusively. And then finally, don't they both end up interceding between God and the people? Isn't that their role, ultimately? Uh, Yeshua mediates the uh, atonement and his own sacrifice between the people, not only the people of Israel and God, but ultimately uh, between all people everywhere in God. Now, uh, Christmas trees and uh, and, uh, Hanukkah menorahs have nothing in common, right? What I'm saying is, you know, the Jewish tradition and the Christian traditions are just so far apart. How can you even be bold enough to make this comparison? Isn't this a little bit artificial right here? Someone might object. Trying to draw the inference of parallels here is forced. Well, okay, let's look even closer. I I think that there are parallels between Moses, we say Moshe, and uh, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. These parallels can't just simply be ignored. If if we're talking about the situation of of their arrival on the scene, in the case of, of Egypt, Israelites were slavery and oppression in slavery and oppressed in the situation of Yeshua 2,000 years ago uh, pretty much the whole world was enslaved and oppressed and and really with no end in sight if you're talking about the domination of the Roman Empire for example who 2,000 years ago saw its downfall coming really not all they saw was ever expanding empire, of ever expanding might and power, and you know, it was in it it was in near Yeshua time when the Republic became an empire, and when the when the Caesar became a demigod and 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 people practically worshiped him. So the world was the world came to be as Israel was over 3,000 years ago, enslaved, oppressed, and crying out for a deliverer. Now, in the time of Yeshua, the world is oppressed, enslaved, and crying out for a deliverer. Secondly, speaking of parallels, Isn't it God who intervenes to provide that Redeemer? So, and Moses didn't think this up. They didn't have a committee that said, let's get a solution going here. Maybe if we pick someone to stand up before Pharaoh. No, God God had the burning bush that Moses walked over to, and, uh, and he began explaining the situation to him. You are the guy, Moses. I don't care what you think. You are the guy. You are going to go. And, and of course, Moses objected. Well, what if they don't believe me? What if they, you know, they say, who is it that sent you? What's his name? And and so on. And God would have none of it. He, he, He answered every objection and sent this unknown Jewish man to stand in front of the king of Egypt and tell him let my people go free my people uh yeshua on the other hand jesus who who would have thought that that he is the savior the redeemer he sure didn't look the job he didn't even live in uh, in the the lands of judah uh, he lived way way to the north in the galilee which was m- most of the villages and cities in the Galilee's were Greek in nature. That's why the New Testament speaks of the Decapolis, the 10 cities. Those aren't Jewish cities at all, uh, the Greek. and uh, And many things about him doesn't really map onto what would have been our expectation to fulfill all those wonderful promises in the Old Testament, rising up, to sit on the throne of David for example or as it says in the book of Ezekiel that he actually would be David once again sitting on his throne which of course it was meant to be a metaphor but coming out of obscurity not from an important family no wealth to brag about uh didn't you know wasn't educated in the best colleges he comes out of nowhere with seemingly no no qualifications. Moses comes out of nowhere with seemingly no qualifications. No one in the community knows him. Why would Pharaoh even listen to him anyway? Who is he to represent us? And so this 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 uh, the puzzle pieces don't fit. Yet he was. He was and 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 he did he was the redeemer he did redeem and does save both born to the job you could say in a sense uh you know all of the uh, circumstances around their birth uh miraculous uh, they were in several ways but born to the job for different reasons obviously but let's uh, let's look here for example, at the parental aspect. Moses was uh, was born to a Jewish woman. her name was Johaved and uh, but because of the decree of of the uh, Egyptian king who said to the to his people, when uh, when the Jews give birth, when the Israelites, have a son, throw him in the Nile. And uh, they had so jealous had the Egyptians become of the Israelites that they were even willing to murder their male, male uh, infants. Moses uh, was given up by his own mother in order to save his life. She put him in a little basket. We all know the story. Placed the basket in the Nile River, the princess herself, the daughter of Pharaoh, uh spotted the the basket and uh you know how it is, oh, how cute. Look at this little baby. And decided to adopt him as her own. And and uh fortuitously, uh Moses, Moses's uh older sister was nearby, I guess she must have been a servant of the princess, and said, shall I find you a, a Jewish woman, a wet nurse, to, uh, to nurse the boy? Oh, yeah, do that. And then when when, when he's, uh, after he's been weaned, I'll bring him into the palace. But this notion of, of the mother having to give up the son for the sake for his sake. It runs parallel between it uh, and, and Mary, when you think about it. So, uh, it, they were both as infants, hunted, being hunted, but yet spared. In the case of Moses, the king of Egypt wanted to kill the male children. In the case of Yeshua, Herod the king had heard that that the baby born to be the Messiah had been born and he wanted to kill all the babies, male babies. So, and there's a similar aspect there. Uh, Moses barely, barely knew his mother, right? Uh, When he was weaned, she had to give him up, let's say two or three years old. And in some ways uh, we see a parallel with Mary. And in that, she, in some aspects, Mary, who gave birth to and raised Yeshua as an infant, didn't really know Yeshua in in some aspects, right? In uh, for for example, uh, in uh, in Luke chapter two, verse forty one, it describes about. A time when Yeshua was a young man that the family went up to Jerusalem for Passover he was 12 years old and it says that after the festival was over that that the parent his it says his parents returned were on their way to return to uh, Nazareth where they lived that uh, that Jesus stayed in Jerusalem they didn't realize this verse 44 Supposing he was somewhere in the caravan, they spent a whole day on the road. They began searching for him among their relatives and friends. Failing to find him, they returned to Jerusalem, and on the third day, they found him. He was sitting in the temple court among the rabbis, not only listening to them, but questioning what they said. Everyone who heard him was astonished at his insight and responses. When his parents saw him, they were shocked, and his mother said, "Son." Why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been terribly worried about you. But he said, why did you even look for me? Didn't you know I had to be concerning myself with my father's affairs? But they didn't understand what he meant. Now, think about Mary and Joseph as his parents. My father's affairs? What do you mean? I'm your father. And and to his mother, what do you mean? We didn't even need to look for you. You're, You're our son. And so they were terribly distraught and and yet it seemingly his own parents' feelings took a complete backseat to a different different agenda in a way his mother barely knew who he was and uh, and we see this time and time again in the you know famously in the as John says this first miracle that Uh, Yeshua performed was turning water into wine. So in John 2, it says in verse 1, there was a wedding at Cana in the Galilee, and the mother of Yeshua was there, and and he was invited to the wedding too. The wine ran out, and Yeshua's mother said, they have no more wine. He replied, mother, why should that concern me or you? My time hasn't come yet. His mother said to the servants, "Okay, do whatever he tells you and, and i'm I'm adding my own take on this, but I can't help but to wonder how many times how many times she had to say, "Well, okay, we have no idea what he's doing here, uh, but he's going to do it anyway, so whatever he tells you to do, just do that and almost like total resignation, you know. He doesn't seem to concern himself about what matters to us or other people. He keeps talking about just being about his father's business. So, okay, whatever he says to do, just do that. And uh, it's kind of funny in a way when you think of it that way. But but time and again, uh, you know, there was another time when his, his mother and brother showed up and someone said, did you know your mother and brother are outside? That was in Matthew 12. And he goes. He looks around at his audience, and he goes, "Who's my mother? Who's my brother? You, anyone who does the will of God, is my mother and my brother." And just totally ignoring the fact that his mother and brother were stuck outside trying to get in to have a word with him. And so, you know, in, in a way, there, there isn't there a parallel there uh, between between uh, the mother, the mothers. So, uh, you know, then, then we have, uh, there's an Egyptian connection, too, right? Uh, Moses was in Egypt, but then Jesus also was in Egypt. In uh, Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son, which was uh, an apostle, referring to what was originally the exodus of Israel out of Egypt as God's son, now being applied to Jesus, right? Uh, he went down to egypt to escape uh, herod but god called him out of egypt to come back and then you know the whole redeemer connection the deliverer connection moses delivered israel uh, yeshua delivered the world and but even there the the disciples on the road to emma said and we were hoping that he would deliver israel and then finally we have uh, the lamb. Moses introduced the Passover lamb to the children of Israel. And, uh, and Yeshua was the Passover lamb, but not for Israel only, for the whole world. But when we look at these parallels, what's the point? Why, would, why do they even exist? And we see that it's entirely in God's economy to anticipate future events and for future acts of redemption, we we could we could go back to Abraham, for example, who who God said to him uh, in Genesis 12, through you all the all the nations will be blessed, and through your descendants, and that's the original uh, covenantal promise. And then and then he has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And Ishmael doesn't follow God, but Isaac does. And so there's this redemptive promise in his descendants, but that redemptive promise is only fulfilled through the son who follows God. The son who rejects the God of Abraham does not fulfill the redemptive promise. Then we have uh, the son, his son, uh, Isaac, who who then has twin sons Jacob and Esau and even though th- this time they are the same mother same father once again how is that promise of redemption for the world fulfilled it is not fulfilled through the son that rejects the principles of god Esau and goes and lives somewhere else far away but it, but they are fulfilled through the son Jacob, who who does love the principles of God and has of has a walk of faith in the the God of his father Isaac and his father Abraham. Then again, the redemption of the world is anticipated in the sons of Jacob. So Jacob has twelve sons, but it turns out Joseph is is the one who follows God fully and and keeps his principles, and it is none other than Joseph, who is the redeeming figure, to save the entire family, and serves in many ways as a type of Messiah himself. And and then finally, when we come to Yeshua, we say, see that what is different is not the nature, the fundamental nature of his work, which is A redeemer and deliverer but on on the scale so moses anticipates his work in many ways in delivering israel but yeshua comes along and fulfills every single aspect of the moses story and things that even moses could not fulfill by by being the prophet that moses says another prophet will come by being the leader or the redeemer as moses was but also in fulfilling the priesthood too, and mediating between God and man. So it's quite wonderful how these events that occurred to this tiny nation, Israel, have, uh, in, in a sense, a redemptive analogy that points the way to the sal- to the opportunity for salvation to come to the world. So uh, I hope you got a little bit out of that, and I hope that you will find uh that in our reading of the so-called old testament there are many things that that enlighten our path and point the way to understand the newer testament in a more deep deep and meaningful way and uh and then secondly i guess along the way maybe i gave you a tiny glimpse that's a very tiny glimpse in into how we do this in the context of our community life, observance, and
2: practice. Rabbi Charlie Cohen from Congregation Samach Adonai in Los Gatos.
1: This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website, to church of the at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor in church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.